And uh, I'm so glad to be here to our chancellor. Thank you for the privilege, the opportunity, all the faculty, the staff, the administration, and most of all the students. Thank you for letting me be here. And I thought today that I might talk to you about Jesus. So I want you to take your Bible and turn to the fourth gospel. That's the gospel of John. Find the gospel of John. And when you found John, find the first chapter. And when you found John chapter one, look right up here for just a moment. There are four books in the New Testament that we call the gospels. The gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark, the the gospel of Luke, and then the gospel of John. And all of these Gospels are crafted and tailored under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to appeal to certain audiences and to show us who Jesus is. For example, Matthew's Gospel was written primarily to a Jewish audience. And the key phrase in Matthew's Gospel is the phrase that it might be fulfilled. And so Matthew will say something about Jesus and then he'll say... This was done in order that the Old Testament prophecy about Jesus might be fulfilled. Matthew's targeting Jews, and he presents Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then Mark's gospel was written primarily to a Roman audience, and the key word in Mark's gospel is the word immediately, or in the King James Version of the Bible, straightway. And it pictures Jesus as a man of action. There's no genealogy in Mark's gospel like there is in Matthew's gospel. Matthew shows that Jesus has the legal right to be the Messiah, the Christ, the King of Israel. But Romans were not concerned about pedigree and about genealogy. They were men of action. And so what Mark's gospel does is to present Jesus as a man of action. Jesus is teaching. Jesus is healing. Jesus is prophesying. Jesus is dying. Jesus is rising from the dead. And then you come to Luke's gospel. And Luke's gospel is a gospel that is tailored to a Greek audience. It's the most polished. If you could read it in the Greek New Testament like I'm going to do this morning, you would find out that Luke's gospel is the most polished use of the Greek syntax. And it is written primarily to present Jesus as the Son of Man. You see, the Greek philosophers were always searching for the epitome of manhood, whether it was Socrates or Plato or later Aristotle. They wanted to see perfection embodied. And here's what Luke says. He traces Jesus' genealogy back beyond David and back beyond Abraham all the way back to Adam as if to say Jesus is the prototypical man. Jesus is humanity at its apex, at its highest. If you want to see real humanity, you'll see it in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the Son of Man. But when we come to John's Gospel, we have something altogether unique. Because John's gospel is called the eagle's gospel. It soars above all the other gospels. John is not primarily trying to present Jesus as the king of the Jews or as a man of action or as humanity personified. John wants to say that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. He is the eternal Son of God. And if there's a message today that our world desperately needs to hear, it is the message of who Jesus really is. You see, everybody believes in Jesus today. I go to Starbucks almost every day of my life. I get my Christian crack on. Amen at Starbucks. 
inevitably when I'm at Starbucks, I'll engage somebody. I have a personal commitment in my life not to let a day go by where I don't talk to somebody about Jesus. And so while I'm at Starbucks, a lot of the time I'll engage some philosophy student at a university or at a college and we'll inevitably begin to talk about Jesus and who Jesus is. And you know what I've found is, is that most people are not turned off to Jesus. They might be turned off to Christians, but they're not turned off to Jesus. The only problem is most people have absolutely no clue about who Jesus really is. I go to Western Africa. I try to spend months out of the year in Western Africa. And when I go, I go to Ghana. And when I go to Ghana, I go to the northern part of that nation where there are 20,000 villages that have no church, no Christian witness. They have African traditional religion, what we would call juju or magic or witchcraft. And then they have mosques. They have Islam. But they don't have churches. And so we train pastors to go to the northern part of Ghana and plant churches among the Muslims. And you know, the Muslims have great respect for Esau. They believe in Esau. They believe he was a great prophet. And the Hindus love Jesus. And Buddhists love Jesus. And Oprah loves Jesus. Everybody loves Jesus. The only problem is nobody seems to know who Jesus really is. And so what John is doing is saying, if you want to really know who Jesus is, let me tell you. And he starts in John chapter 1, verse 1, and says, in the beginning. Now, everybody look right up here. There are three beginnings in the Bible. There's the beginning of creation in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. There's the beginning of the gospel in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. But when John says, in the beginning, he's talking about the unbegun beginning. Amen? He's saying before there was anything else, in the beginning was the Word, or the Logos. And the Logos was proston theon in the Greek New Testament. It's a word that literally means face to face. We get our word face from the Greek word prosopon, or the preposition pros or pro means to go towards something. And so what John is saying is, in the unbegun beginning, before there was anything else, there was the word, the Logos. Now, his audience was familiar with this term, Logos. John didn't make this word up. It was a word that had coinage in its own day, a word that was used among the Greek philosophers like Plato, for example. Here, listen, Plato rejected the pantheon of the Greeks. Plato said it's ridiculous to believe that there is a place called Mount Olympus where all the pantheon of the Greek gods like Zeus and Apollos and Bacchus and Aphrodite and all these gods live. He said there's not multiple gods. Listen, Plato said this. He said there's one God. There's one God who holds all of reality together. And Plato called this one God, the eternal mind that holds all of reality together, he called it the Logos. He called it the Word. And so John, in order to contextualize the gospel, to make the gospel plain and relevant to his audience, he says in the unbegun beginning there was the Word. There was the eternal mind that holds all of reality together. And this Word was separate from and yet equal to God the Father. Now who is God? Everybody believes in God. You have to work really hard not to believe in God. I was at SMU's campus, Southern Methodist University in Dallas, where I live, and I was at Starbucks, and uh, I started talking to a young philosophy student there who also happened to be a barista, 
And uh, he uh, asked me, what would you like for, for your coffee? And I said, I'd like a French press. And he said, I'll bring it to you in a moment. And when he brought out my coffee, I said, let me ask you a question. Do you believe in Jesus? And he said, oh, I believe in God, but I don't believe in Jesus. And then he said this. He said, as a matter of fact, I'm not even sure anymore if I really believe in God. He said, I think I'm an atheist. And I said, no, I think you're a fool. I made sure he brought my coffee first. Amen. I, he said, <laughs> I said, because only a fool would say in his heart, there's no God. I mean, when you look at creation and your own conscience and the Bible and the person of Christ and changed lives, you have to come to the conclusion that there is a God. And most people believe there's a God, but many people believe that God is far away, that he's distant. This is called deism. Many of the founding fathers of our nation were deists. They believe that God is like the watchmaker who wound up the universe and now he steps back. He never intervenes. There's no such thing as miraculous or supernatural. Everything operates according to laws of nature, and that's deism. And then there are people like Buddhists and Eastern mystics who believe in pantheism, that God is everything, and everything is God. And in, and in, and in India, there are the Hindus, and they believe that there are millions of gods. And this is called polytheism. But what does the Bible say about God? The Bible teaches this, that there is one God. There's one God. Now listen to me. Listen, this is very important. John was a good Jew. That means he was a monotheist. He believed in one God every day of his life. He would get up and and resound the the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. He believed that there was one God. And yet, listen to me, and yet he believed that this one God was a triune God. He said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word, look, was face to face with God. That is a term of equality, prostantheon. It was used of kings who would meet together. And if there was a great big king and a little bitty short king, in order for them to be able to look at each other in the face, in the eye, a term of equality, they would build up the seat of the little bitty short king. So when he looked across the table at the big king, they would look at each other in the face. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was able to look God the Father right in the face. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, face to face with God. And look at this, and the Word, what? Was God. Was God. What do we believe about God? There is one eternal God who exists in three separate but equal persons whom we call the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so what we're saying is that Jesus Christ is not just a prophet. He's not just a teacher or an avatar or a guru. He's not just a failed leader of a hopeless cause, a martyr. Jesus Christ is, in fact, the eternal God. That's why you can't patronize Jesus. You can't just say Jesus is one among many. I talked to somebody not long ago. They said, oh, I believe in Jesus, and I believe in Buddha, and I believe in Muhammad. I believe they're basically all the same. There's only one problem with that. Jesus won't let you do that to him. And John's gospel says, in the beginning, before there was anything else, there was the Word, and the Word was face to face with God, and the Word, in fact, was God. And look at verse number 2. He was in the beginning with God, face to face with God. Verse 3, all things through Him came into being. Egoneto had their origin, their genesis. 
Listen, Jesus is God's agent in creating all of reality. Everything came from Jesus. In him was life, and the life was the light of man, and the light was shining, verse 5, in the darkness, and the darkness was not able to comprehend it or to pull it down, to put it out. And verse 9, the Bible says, and he is the true light that gives light to all men who are coming into the world. Listen to me, listen. Within the heart of every person, there is a desire to know God. All of us are created in the Imago Dei. Theologians talk about the sensus divinitatis. That is, there is a sense of the divine embedded. Listen, embedded within every person and within every culture. There is a thirst and a hunger to know God. When they came to this country, they found our ancestors, my ancestors, the American Indian. They found they were lying prostrate in front of the totem pole where they worship on the totem pole. The gods of the sun and the moon and the wind and the eagle, they knew intuitively that there was a great God. And in ancient Egypt, they worshipped the Nile River and they worshipped the sun. They called it Ra and they felt like the Nile was the source of all life. And in the Middle East, they fanatically worship Allah and the Jews call him Jehovah and modern men worship the gods of lust and power and materialism and fame. But we all worship, the Bible says, God has placed eternity in all of our hearts, all of our hearts, we all long to know God. And Jesus is the source. Listen, Jesus is the true light that gives light to every man who's coming into the world. You know what that means? That means embedded within every culture, there is a hunger to know Jesus. Buddhists really want to know Jesus. You see, there is light in Buddhism. There's truth in Buddhism. There's truth in Islam. There's truth in Hinduism. There's truth in every religion and in every philosophy. There's a spark of light that comes, emanates from Jesus. But if you want to know the true light and the fullest expression of who God is, you can only find that in Jesus. So embedded within the black culture, in the African culture, Jesus is the black Jesus and he is the African Jesus. He's the Hispanic Jesus. Jesus. He's the Asian Jesus. He's the Tongan Jesus. He's the Caucasian Jesus. Jesus is embedded within every culture and yet Jesus transcends every culture and creates his own culture in which neither Jew or Gentile or male or female or bond or free mean anything but all of us have come to know life and light in Jesus Christ. Amen. And that's what we've got to tell the world. That God, listen to me, listen to me, that the God who created every one of us to know himself was not content to remain at a distance or at an arm's length, but this eternal God, this eternal mind through which everything came into being, listen to me, listen to me, came from the starry steps of eternity, walked down the starry steps of eternity, came from heaven down into time. The creating one became the cradled one. The infant was the infinite. God wrapped his deity up in flesh and became a man and dwelt among us. Look at what verse number 14 says. It says, and the word, the logos, became sarks in the Greek New Testament. It means meat. It means flesh. We Talk about the incarnation. The word carne in Latin means flesh. It means meat. Listen to me. 
God became meat. God became flesh. And this was, of course, a great scandal to the audience to which John wrote because they were steeped in Platonic dualism. And Plato taught that there were, listen, this is powerful, there were two realms of reality, Plato said. He said there's the non-corporeal, the spiritual, and the immaterial. And then he said there's the physical and the tangible and the touchable. And Plato said these two worlds can never meet because if the immaterial ever came into contact with the material, if the non-corporeal ever came into contact with the corporeal, if flesh ever touched spirit, it would defile flesh. And so there was this eternal separation between the immaterial and the material. And so people in that day were confused about who Christ was, just like they are today. There were a group known as the Gnostics. And the word Gnostics comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know. And there were two groups of Gnostics. There were Corinthian Gnostics who said that Jesus, listen to me, Jesus was a man, only a man upon whom the Spirit of the Christ came at His baptism and then left at His crucifixion when He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so Serenthus taught. He lived in the city of Ephesus, the same city that John lived in when he picked up a pen and put it to parchment and wrote this gospel. And Serenthus was attracting a large following by saying that Jesus was nothing more than just a man upon whom the Spirit of the Christ came and then left at His crucifixion then there were another group of heretics they were called the docetists because the greek word dokeo means to appear or to seem and so what they were saying is this jesus was not really a man jesus only seemed to be a man he only appeared to be a man in fact he was pure spirit if you tried to touch him your hand would go right through him kind of like a hologram in our day. And so there were some people who said Jesus was only a man, and there were some people who were saying that Jesus was only spirit. And in one verse, John blows away both of these Gnostic heresies. He says, no, the eternal mind, Plato's eternal mind, it'd be like going to a Star Wars convention and talking about the force, the force, the eternal mind, listen, stepped out of eternity into time and God became a man. The material and the immaterial came together. Heaven touched earth in the person of Jesus Christ. He became flesh. And look at this. And he eskenosin. He pitched his... It's literally a word that means to pitch a tent. It has the same consonants as the intertestamental word Shekinah, which is a synonym for the glory of... In other words, listen, the glory of God. The glory of God that dwelt at first in a garden. And then we messed that up. And then God said, I want you to build me a tent, a tabernacle where I can live. And we did it and we messed that up. Then God said, I want you to build a temple where I could come and dwell among my people. And they did. And the glory of God filled the temple. But because of sin and rebellion, we messed that up. And finally God said, I'm going to do something myself that you can't mess up. So God left eternity. Listen, and I'm finished. So God left eternity and came into time. The infant was at the same time the infinite. 
The baby that Mary held to her breast was at the same time the mighty warrior God who spoke all of reality into being. That's who Jesus is. That's why we can't compromise and say Jesus is, oh yeah, you know, it's Jesus or, or Buddha or, or Muhammad or it doesn't really. Yes, my friend, Jesus is God. He's God. He came into time. He pitched his tent of flesh among us. And the Bible says we beheld in him the glory of God, full of grace and truth, full of the glory of God. If you want to know who Jesus is, he is God come in the flesh. And that's our message. Our message to the world is not religion. Our message to the world is not a philosophy of life. Our message in, uh, to the world is not try to do better and turn over a new leaf. Honey, you need a whole new tree, amen? And only God can give you that. Our message, our message is Jesus. Our message is Jesus. And the whole world needs Jesus. I wasn't raised in the church. My mama was a bartender. She was 15 years old when she got pregnant with me. She herself had been the victim of sexual molestation in her own home like one-third of all American women are. My mom was 15 years old. She thought she found the love of her life. My dad was a teenager. My mom got pregnant. They didn't know God. My mom's dad literally drank himself to, to, to death. As far as I know, we lived in an area of town called the Dog Patch. It was a tough area. Six blocks from a Southern Baptist church, as far as I know, nobody from that church ever came to our little hovel of a home and knocked on the door and said to my teenage mom and my teenage daddy, hey, why don't you kids come to our church and bring your little baby? You're better than that. Have you ever given your heart to Jesus? That's why, I, listen, that's why I'm so passionate about Jesus. You say, Scott, why are you always talking about Jesus? And everywhere you go, you talk about Jesus. Are you some kind of religious nut? Listen, I might be a nut, but I'm screwed onto the right bolt. Amen? I mean, he's changed my life. Whoa, hallelujah. And I'll never forget, because my parents didn't know God, because nobody ever took the time to try to tell my parents how they could know Jesus and come in to know God and how their marriage, I often think about what a difference it would have made in my parents' marriage and in my own life if somebody would have just cared enough to try to tell them about Jesus. As far as I know, nobody ever came. And so when I was six, seven years old, I'll never forget coming home from elementary school and standing between my mom and dad and dodging flying pots and pans and flying cuss words and flying accusations. I was just six, seven years old. My parents got a divorce. They threw the towel in on their marriage. And I don't know how to explain it to you, although many of you have been there. It felt like my guts were being ripped out. Something died on the inside of me that day. I became a very problem child. I began to have problems, emotional problems, in elementary school. And by the time I was in eighth grade, somebody had introduced me to alcohol. By the time I was a freshman in high school, drugs. And by the time... 
I was a sophomore, a junior in high school. I was a full-blown teenage drug addict and alcoholic. Now on the outside, I looked like I had it all together because I was 220-pound fullback on the football team going to play college football. But it was just me and four walls and darkness. I cried myself to sleep at night because I didn't think anybody cared about me. My life was so out of control. It was My life was like a soap opera. I mean, as the world turned, I was one of the young and the restless who was in a constant... <laughs> search for tomorrow until one day the guiding light led me by the hand through the secret storm promised me I could live with him in another world and be part of all my children amen I mean God changed my life and I want to tell you how it happened and I'm done my senior year in high school my best friend was the biggest dope dealer in our entire area he drove a brand new T-Bird, bought with his own money, always had a pocket of $100 bills. His dad was the leader of the Mexican Mafia. He would pull up in our driveway and honk the horn, and I'd come out. We'd light up a couple of joints, pop a couple of pills. And by the time I got to first period geometry class, I was stoned out of my mind, so I just slept through geometry. And my teacher finally just said, just leave him alone. It's a lot easier to have class if he's asleep. <laughs> but there were three girls in that class. Listen to me, please. And they, they were beautiful young ladies. They were cheerleaders, and they were well-respected on our campus. But they got to the point, listen to me, they got to the point in their life where they didn't care about anything anymore except Jesus and souls. You see, there are only two things that are going to last throughout eternity, the Word of God and the souls of men. That's it. That's all. That's the only thing worth investing your life in is the Word of God and the souls of men. I found out later that they went to a little Baptist church out in the country. I'd never been to church before. And when their youth group got together, they didn't play little youth group games or go on little youth group trips. They got on their face before God, and I found out that they would weep over me. They made a top ten list of the worst kids in our high school who they wanted to see saved. And guess who made number one? You're looking at it right now. You know what I'll never forget? I'll never forget being in a geometry class early one morning with my head down. I was asleep, and one of those girls kind of woke me up. She punched me, and she said, Scott... And I'll never forget her tears. She said, Scott, you know why you're so miserable? And I said, why don't you tell me? She said, it's because you don't know Jesus. And another girl said, Scott, don't you understand that Jesus died for you? Why would God, why would God become a man? This is the great question that theologians have wrestled with. Anselm, in the 12th century, wrote his classic Cur Deus Homo in Latin. Why? Would God become a man? Why would God do that? Why would he take such drastic measures? Why would the eternal God become a man? And Anselm, I believe, answered the question right when he said this. God became a man because only a man could die for other men. Only a man could take the place of other men. The Bible says the blood of bulls and goats could never wash away our sin. And so God did something radical. He didn't send an angel. He didn't give us advice. He didn't say, let me give you a philosophy. God said, I'll come down there myself in the person of my son and I'll go to the cross. Oh, 
only a man could die for other men. And they spit on his face and they ripped his beard out by the roots and they pounded away at him over and over until his eyes were swollen and puffy and his lips were bruised and broken. And they cleared their throat and they spit on him. They put a crown of thorns on his head and beat him with a stick until it drove the thorns deeper and deeper into his brow and he was blinded by his own blood. And they hit him and kicked him and spit on him and drove nails through his hands and raised the cross up high in the air and dropped it in a huge hole in the ground. And when the bottom of that cross hit the bottom of that hole, all his bones came out of joint. And there's God in a body hanging on a cross covered with spit and sweat and dirt and blood. And do you know what else covered him that day? Every sin I've ever committed. Every sin you've ever committed, every time we've ever taken His name in vain or lied or stolen or disobeyed our parents or committed adultery or sexual immorality or blasphemed His name or failed to honor Him, we should honor Almighty God. God took all my sin and all your sin and put them on Jesus. And the Bible says God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we could be made right with God. Why would God become a man? Because only a man could die in the place of other men and only a man who was at the same time God could die for all the men who have ever lived throughout history. And so on that cross that day, God in the flesh, the immaterial and the material combined in one person, two natures in one person, it's a mystery, the mystery of the Godhead. God died that day on the cross for me. And for you and those girls said, Scott, if you'll just give your heart to Jesus, God can forgive you and come to live in you and change you. And I had just about had enough. I was under such conviction. I stood up and said, I don't believe there is a God. I took God's name in vain and walked out of that classroom in the middle of the class. And one of those little girls, Kelly Crossan, I'll never forget her, we're friends to this day, found me in the hall later that afternoon, stuck her little finger in my big face and said, Buddy, you're the biggest phony at this high school. And then she said this. She said, I'm going to pray for you every day until God changes your life. And a month later, in a discotheque in Arlington, Texas, I was arrested, booked on a felony charge, put in a jail cell in Fort Worth, Texas, and I can't understand, explain. Listen, I got three masters. I'm working on a second doctorate right now. I take theology. I preach from the Greek New Testament. I take all this thing very seriously, but there's some things that transcend our ability to reason and understand in the natural. Somehow, like air coming into my lungs, Christ came to live in my life in that jail. I repented of my sin. I put my faith in Christ who died on the cross and three days later, rose up from the dead and he's alive I turned from my sin and trusted him I walked into that jail cell one person I walked out of that jail cell a brand new person and for the last 33 years I've been traveling all over the world and I have one simple message and is that Jesus is the answer Jesus is what the whole world is looking for, and Jesus is what the whole world needs. If you're an astronomer, He's the bright morning star. If you're a baker, He's the bread come down from heaven. 
If you're a carpenter, He's the door. If you're a doctor, He's the great physician. If you're an electrician, He's the light of the world. If you're a farmer, He's the Lord of the harvest. If you're a geologist, He's the rock of ages. If you're a jeweler, He's the pearl of great price. If you're a horticulturalist, He is the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. If you're a lawyer, He's our advocate with the Father. If you're a king, He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. If you're a mortician, He's the resurrection and the life. If you're a nutritionist, unless you eat His flesh and drink His blood, you have no life in you. If you're an optometrist, He made the blind man see. If you're a philosopher, He's the truth. If you're a traveler, He's the way. He's Jesus. He's Jesus. He's Jesus. Woo! He's Jesus. And what the whole world needs is Jesus. Don't you see that in Africa they're hungry for Jesus? Don't you see that every time a junkie in Oakland, California sticks a needle in his arm, all he's saying is, what do I have to do to be saved? What do I have to do to find? Don't you understand that every time a young lady looks for love in the backseat of her boyfriend's car, all she's really saying is, I wish somebody would love me. I wish I could know Jesus. He is the true light that lights every person who comes into the world. And I want to tell you, the, the darkness cannot overcome the light. Amen. Communism could not overcome the light of Jesus and Islam cannot overcome and socialism and capitalism and all the other isms will eventually fade into insignificance. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever He remains the same. And so I want to challenge you today. Listen to me, listen to me. Listen to me. In everything you learn at this school and in every experience you ever have in this place, don't forget one thing, and that is this, that the answer is Jesus. Jesus, living in you, living through you, loving people through you, loving those who everybody else has given up on, whether it was snotty-nosed kids or women caught in adultery, Whether they were down and out or like Zacchaeus, up and out, it didn't matter. Jesus was the embodiment of the love of the Father for the whole world. And he says today, as the Father sent me, I am sending you. Amen. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed all over this place. No one's looking around. Just keep the lights on, would you please? Don't talk to anybody. Don't bother anybody. Don't do anything that would distract anybody or disturb anybody i got to ask you two simple questions this morning. I don't ever want to take it for granted that everybody I'm talking to really knows Jesus. You might be a guest here today. Somebody invited you. They know you need to get your life together. Let me tell you something. You'll never be able to get your life together. The only way to get your life together is to come to Jesus. He loves you. He died for you. He rose from the dead. And I don't ever want to take it for granted that even at a Bible college... That everybody in the room really knows Jesus. Let me tell you something. Listen to me. Please hear me. Jesus, you can grow up in church and Jesus can be all around you but not in you. You can die and go to hell and miss heaven by 18 inches. 18 inches from your head to your heart. It's not enough just to know about Jesus and to...
say, yeah, I believe everything you said. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever really surrendered your heart to Jesus? i got to ask you that. I wouldn't be a man of God. I wouldn't be a minister of the gospel today if I didn't ask you that. I want to ask you this question. Do you remember the time and the place? Do you remember when you turned from your sin and you turned to Christ? Believing that he's the son of God, that he died on the cross for you and rose from the dead. Do you remember when you committed your life to Jesus? How many of you in this place could say, Scott, I remember the day and the time when I got saved. Man, I mean saved to the bone. I love Jesus with all my heart. I'm as sure for heaven as if I'd already been there a million years. If I died right now, there's no doubt about it. I know I'd go to heaven. I love him more than anything. Everybody that knows me knows that I love Jesus and I know for sure that I'm saved. If that's your testimony and you can say it with a clear conscience, I want you to lift your hand up high in the air and hold it there for just a moment. Matter of fact, if that's your testimony, lift both hands high in the air and just say out loud, thank you, Lord Jesus. Woo, come on. Thank you, Lord. God, thank you for saving me. Jesus, thank you for dying for me for shedding your blood, for coming in human flesh so that I could be forgiven, so my life could be changed, so I could be set free. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Praise you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Just worship Him for a minute. Remember where He brought you from? You know something I pray all the time, God, don't ever let me forget what it was like to be lost. God, don't ever let me forget what it was like to wake up in a pile of my own vomit. God, don't ever let me forget what it was like when they slammed those big iron doors behind me and I felt so hopeless and so lonely. And then Jesus came. Then Jesus came. Then Jesus came. And He set me free and changed me. And He's given me a beautiful wife and four children and let me travel all over the world telling people this simple message that Jesus loves you and died for you and rose from the dead. And if you'll come to Him, He'll change your life forever. Praise His name. We love you, Jesus. Say that out loud. We love you, Lord Jesus. Now I want to speak to those of you, and there are those of you in this room, who could not lift your hand to say, I know that I know that I know. I know that I'm saved. Many of you could not lift your hand. Maybe you're a guest here. Maybe you've been struggling with this. You know, every time I preach at a Bible college, it's amazing the number of people who give their heart to Jesus. Because just knowing the Bible won't get you to heaven. Did you know that? The devil knows the Bible. It's not enough to know about Jesus and know the Bible and come to Bible college. I'm asking you, have you ever surrendered your heart to Christ? Have you ever turned from your sin and trusted in Christ and Christ alone? Let me ask you a question. If you were to die right now and stand before God, and God asked you this question, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Would you say, well, I'm a member of a church, or I I try to do my best, or I, I, I believe in God. Listen, those are wonderful things, but none of those things will get you to heaven. The only way to go to heaven is to come through Jesus. Through who he is, God come in the flesh, and through what he's done. He died on the cross and shed his blood so that you could be forgiven. And three days later, he rose from the dead. And I want to ask you right now, sitting all over this room, if you could not lift your hand, I want to ask you to give your heart to Christ right now. The Bible says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved from hell, saved to heaven, given a brand new life on this earth. And I'm going to ask you to pray with me. 
You're not saved by praying a prayer. Listen, you can pray prayers and you'll die and go straight to hell because our faith is not in a prayer we pray. Some of you, some of you, when you were five years old, you prayed some prayer, but your life, there's no real hunger. You don't really know God. The best you could say is, well, my mama says that I got saved. My daddy said, when I was seven, I got saved. Listen, this is not about you and mama or you and daddy. This is about you and Jesus. And it's time right now, while every Christian is praying for you, it's time for you to get this thing settled right now, right now, Thursday. It's time, this is your day to give your heart to Jesus Christ. And so I want to voice a prayer, and I'm going to ask everybody in this room to pray out loud with me. Because it'll encourage people who are sitting around you that really need to get saved. You know why some of you have such a problem in the school? You don't seem to understand the lectures. You can't seem to get your life in order. It's because you really don't know Jesus. You've never really given your life to Christ. You checked the box. You needed to go to school somewhere, and you checked the box. that said, I know I'm saved, but deep inside, some of you went to bed last night. You go to bed every night saying, God, if I'm not saved, save me tonight. Listen, get that thing settled right now. In just a moment, I'm going to voice a prayer for everybody in the room, and I want everybody to pray. But for many of you, this will be the first time that you've ever really trusted Christ as your Savior. Let's get that nailed down right now, right now. Are you ready? Let's pray from our heart right now. Everybody out loud, just say, oh God, thank you for creating me, for loving me. Even though I'm a sinner and I've broken your law and I don't deserve to go to heaven. But God, I don't want to go to hell. And God, I don't want to live like hell anymore. God, I'm so sick of being sick and tired. I'm so sick and tired of being empty. I know something's missing in my life. And I know that something is a someone named Jesus. Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. And that you died on the cross to pay for my sin. And that you rose from the dead. And that you're alive. And the best I know how, I repent. I turn from my sin. And I give you my heart today. And I ask you to forgive me. And save me. And change me. And from this day on, I want to follow you. And live for you the rest of my life. And I really mean it. I really mean it. Now, heads are bowed, eyes are closed. I want to ask you a question. Is there anybody in this room who's got the courage to say, Today, I prayed that simple prayer with you and I meant business. I meant business. Today, today I prayed with you to give my life to Christ. If that's you, I want you to look up at me right now and let your eyes meet mine. Just let your eyes meet mine. God bless you, man. Just keep looking up. Let me talk to you for just a moment. God bless you, buddy. God bless you. God bless you. Anybody else? God bless you. God bless you. I'm talking about people who today are saying for the first time, man, I'm surrendering my life to Christ. God bless you and God bless you. Anybody else? God bless you and you and you. Anybody else? Anybody else? Anybody else? Now listen to me. If you prayed with me and you're looking up or you know you need to be, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you not to be ashamed of Jesus. Because Jesus was not ashamed of you. When he died on the cross, he didn't die in a closet. He died in front of thousands of people who were laughing at him and mocking him and jeering him and taunting him. But he thought you were worth it. Nails didn't keep him on the cross, man. His love for you kept him on the cross. He wasn't ashamed of you. 
and I'm going to ask you not to be ashamed of him. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to do what I've seen over 50, 60,000 people do in the last 30 years of my life. I'm going to ask you not to be ashamed of Jesus. You say, what do you want me to do? In just a moment, we're going to stand and begin to sing about Jesus. And I'm going to ask you and 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 you. I'm going to ask everybody in this room who's looking up at me or know you need to be. I'm going to ask you to get up out of your seat and not to be ashamed. And I'm going to ask you to come and stand right here facing me. And that will be your way of saying, today, I'm committing the rest of my life to following Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed. I don't care who knows it, who doesn't know it. Let me tell you something. Some of you are embarrassed. What will my friends think? I'm in Bible college. Listen, who gives a rip what they think? The only thing that matters is what God knows. And I'd hate to die and go to hell with a Bible college degree in my hand. Come to Jesus. Don't be ashamed. Matter of fact, I want you to get up right now and just come. Just come on. If you prayed with me, you come right now. Let's all stand together. Come on, sing it, buddy. Let's sing right now. Come on, come on, just come on right now. God bless you, buddy. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Keep the lights on, please. Just keep the lights on. I love you. Amen. I love you, buddy. God bless you. I love you. I love you. God bless you. I love you. Just come. Just come. Come. Come to Christ. Just come. All that really satisfies we Come on, sing it. Sing it out loud. Pastor stirring deep inside. You're all that really satisfied. We worship you. Pastor stirring deep inside. You're all that really satisfied. We worship look up this way first of all I think we ought to give the Lord a hand of praise for these folks who have come to get this thing straight praise God I'm going to tell you we'd have revival if half the Bible college students in America really met Jesus I was preaching at a large first Baptist church a year ago a couple of hundred people gave their life to Christ in four days. You know who the last person was? Chairman of the deacon's wife. Here's what she said. She said, my husband's the sheriff of the county. We've been members of this church. She said, my husband's the chairman of the deacons. We've served in every capacity of this church. We've been on the board. And then she said this, but I've known for 30 years I was lost. She said, when we joined the church, nobody asked me if I was saved. They just gave me a card. I filled it out. They introduced us as members of the church. She said, for 30 years, I've been too stinking proud to humble myself and say I'm lost. With tears rolling down her cheeks, she said, tonight I want to get this thing settled. I want to get it settled. The glory. She got baptized the next night. The glory of God filled that place. So I want to say to you, man, thank you for having the guts and the courage. Some of you have come with friends. Some of you have been doubting. You've been wondering, man, am I really saved? Thank God. The Bible says these things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know you have eternal life. And here's what I want you to do. In just a moment, I don't want you to let these kids stand alone. These are friends of yours, really family members of yours. I'm going to ask you to do two things. Number one. 
I want everybody that's standing out there to turn to three or four people around you, look at them right in the eye, and ask them this question. Are you sure you really know Jesus? Are you sure you really know Jesus? And then secondly, listen. And then secondly, I'm going to ask all of you that know Christ. I'm going to ask you to come and just stand around these folks and pray for them. Lay hands on them. Begin to pray for them. We're all going to pray in a moment. But if you look at somebody and ask them, are you sure you really know Jesus? And they begin to weep like a girl I talked to in Duncan, Oklahoma, not long ago. She went, she was, went, went to church. She was raised in the church. She was a waitress at a pizza restaurant. I said, sweetheart, do you really know Christ? She began to weep. She said, a month ago, I was in a terrible automobile accident. They showed me a picture of my car. I shouldn't be here. It was twisted up like a pretzel. And she said, every night for the last 30 days, I've been crying myself to sleep, saying, God, if you're real, send somebody into my life to tell me how I can know you. And that day in that pizza restaurant, she took me by the hand and the pastor's hand. We made a circle of prayer. And she gave her life to Christ. She got it settled. If you talk to somebody in a moment and they say, I'm not really sure, take them by the hand. Say, let's get it sure. Let's let's get it right. Let's get this thing about, listen, that's first base. Man, if you hit the ball and knock it over the fence and you touch second and third and come home, but you miss first, you're out. You can go to Bible college and know the Bible and be a preacher or a deacon. Listen, hell, I could spit in hell right now and hit a preacher right on the head. It's not enough to be a preacher or a Bible college professor. I'm asking you, do you really know Christ? Is Christ really? I am afraid that most of the people that go to our churches really do not know Christ. They just go to church. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger, man. I mean, you've got to know Christ personally. I'm going to ask everybody in this room to turn to three or four people, ask them this question. Did you really know Jesus? And if they say no, you bring them to Christ. And then I want all of us to come and take a stand around our new brothers and sisters. Let's do it right now. Do it right now. Turn to three or four people. Come on, sing it, buddy.